0: Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm Sarah.
1: And I'm William.
0: And today is a special episode, which I feel like I say a lot, but it is a special episode for the National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. We are going to talk about eating disorders and the intersection between sexual assault, dating abuse, and domestic violence. As we navigate this conversation, we're going to talk about some misconceptions. We're going to talk about a lot of different things that related to eating disorders and abuse. So please take care of yourself and pause the recording when you need to and come back and join us when you're ready. To have this conversation with us, we have a incredible guest, Vivian Sanchez, who is on our youth leadership board. Hi, Vivian.
2: Hi, Sarah, and hi to everyone listening. My name is Vivian Sanchez. I go to the Woodlands College Park High School and I'm the region seven representative on the Young Hearts Matter leadership board.
0: We're so glad you're here, Vivian. Thank you. Before we jump in to have this conversation, would you mind telling us about why you are on our leadership board and why this conversation is important to you?
2: Of course. I joined the board two years ago whenever my passion grew to raise awareness for sexual assault, teen dating violence, domestic violence. I think these issues are really heavy topics and hard to speak about among teens. And I think that's why we need to have these conversations to help raise awareness and to help anyone who's going through these things understand and know that they're not alone in any
0: of these situations. Absolutely. Thank you,
1: Vivian. So glad you're here. You came up with a fun question for us today. So what's your fun question for all of us to answer?
2: Yes. Today's icebreaker question is, what is your favorite scented candle? William, what's your favorite scented candle?
1: My favorite scent is, uh, I think it's Eucalyptus and Spearmint, I think. is It's the de-stress candle from Bath and Body Works. So that's, that's the one I generally have on hand in my apartment.
0: I will say, whenever I have that candle, I'm like sticking my face over it, being like, this isn't relieving any of my stress. And I feel like it's false advertising, but it does smell delicious
1: yeah i went uh recently i guess not so recently anymore but to the grand canyon and the lodge that i stayed at had that same scent and like the body wash and the conditioner and the shampoo and the lotion and i was like should i steal all of these things i didn't do that because i figured they would charge me for it but it's a great scent but it's like constant de-stress moments you know sarah what's your favorite candle scent
0: I feel like we are just giving Bath and Body Works a good promo here, but their mahogany and teakwood, the high intensity specifically one is my absolute favorite. I will only buy that candle other than the stress relief. And I currently have one of those wallflower things to make my room smell like it. It's
1: incredible. Honestly, we should go for a sponsorship. We should. Yeah. All right, Vivian, your turn. Favorite candle. What you got?
2: I don't have an exact favorite candle, but anything vanilla scented, I'm in love with and will buy no matter how expensive it is. So any candle companies, if you have anything vanilla, send it my way.
1: Perfect. I just got some vanilla ice cream. That's my exciting news for the day. So we love burning candles. We love relaxation. That's good for us to know. We all need to de-stress, especially in these pandemic times and for these heavy conversations that we're having. So... Like Sarah mentioned, we're here this week to talk about the intersection of eating disorders and relationship violence. But before we jump into that intersection, we, because it's National Eating Disorder Awareness Week, we want to get some basic facts and maybe bust some myths to start with. So, Sarah, as our resident counseling intern, can you tell us what a basic definition of eating disorders is?
0: So before I answer that, first and foremost, I have not specialized in eating disorders. I have had some personal education and some professional education on them. And I will be referring a lot to the National Eating Disorder Association's website. They have some great information. If you want to know more than even what we just talked about today, feel free to visit their website that will link in the episode description for more information and for resources. But ultimately, eating disorders are... Complex relationships with food. And that can look a lot of different ways. There are some eating disorders that are diagnosable, for example, anorexia and bulimia and binge eating disorder. There's also other ones that are not so commonly talked about, which are avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. There's other specified food and eating disorders because not everything fits into a category. There's unspecified eating, feeding and or eating disorder. And then there's also PICA as well as rumination disorder. I'm not so familiar with those last two, but they are very interesting nonetheless. So again, like I said, I think it's just a complex relationship with food and Like I said, and I really want to stress this is that not all eating disorders match what is in that diagnosable DSM that I talked about in our gaming episode, but that doesn't mean that they're not there.
1: So Sarah, can you tell us in addition to that and maybe like humility with all those diagnosable and undiagnosable uh, disorders, roughly how many people are experiencing an an eating disorder at any given time?
0: Yes. And again, I'm referring to Nita's website and want to reiterate that not everyone is diagnosed, but according to their website, 20 million women and 10 million men in America have or will have an eating disorder at some point in their lifetime. And this is something I didn't know until we were researching for this episode that people who experience sexual assault are two times more likely to experience an eating disorder as well.
2: Thank you, Sarah. That was a lot of helpful, great information. And if you want to learn more, like Sarah said, you can visit Nita's website. And I think we should now start talking about myths. I think a big myth is that only small and skinnier people suffer with eating disorders, which is not true. Anyone from any background, any size can suffer with an eating disorder. I think another myth that surrounds it is that if you're not losing weight, then you're not suffering with an eating disorder because with different eating disorders to come different weight wise. And a lot of people believe that eating disorders are only about the weight when really it's, there's so many other factors that play into eating disorders like control.
0: I think on that note too, I think it is also important to acknowledge that men can experience eating disorders as well. I know growing up for me, it was very much Around the idea that it was like a woman's issue and that men didn't experience it. That's just not true. And kind of like you were saying, I think anyone and everyone can experience an eating disorder. And there are lots of different things that play into it. There can even be like the low self-esteem that plays into it, the control, like you were saying, and yeah, I think even just as a general American culture, we have a interesting idea around food and that can really play into a lot of different things as well.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the fact that men can experience eating disorders. I think that, like Vivian was saying, we often have this image when we, when you hear eating disorder, you're... Um, like knee-jerk image is a, a really thin person and in particular a really thin woman and that image that that narrative is harmful to people who don't fit that particular identity or that particular image and and like we've been saying maybe it comes in different in different forms, and, and you can have a bodybuilder who who has a lot of muscle who has an eating disorder because they're only focused on uh, protein or they're only like they're hyper focused on their um, their macros, and it's not it's not a healthy relationship with food. But because they're muscly, people don't think that they have an eating disorder because they're not this. Um, they don't fit this typical image that we have of someone with an eating disorder.
0: Two things real quick. One being, I'm going to take your image a little bit further and we typically also think it's only white women. I think that's less of an idea than it was when I was in high school, but that's still definitely out there. Out there enough that it is all over Nita's website. When you go in there and look at their, they have like an infographic about marginalized voices and it says eating disorders are often thought of as a disease that affect only white young women. And so to your point, we do just think of it as a young person problem, a white woman problem, and that is problematic in so many different ways because then other people get blown off when they are struggling. My second I thought that I had When you're talking about bodybuilders, I also remember so many conversations and even in like movies about wrestlers who want to meet like a certain weight. And that is so heavily promoted of being a certain weight or not being a certain weight that that can cause a lot of distorted ideas or beliefs around food and weight itself.
1: And in those cases, often it's not viewed as an eating disorder because there is this like athletic goal in mind. And so it feeds into a different conversation we've had before about harmful masculinity and how men don't experience body image the same way and don't experience social pressures the same way and therefore don't get the resources or um, have that same framing around different issues. And they also don't experience the stigma and shame in the same way that women who um, exhibit eating disorders do.
2: I love how both of you brought up about how in sports, how eating disorders can be common because I feel like eating disorders are very common in dance, cheer, like track, gymnastics, like all these other sports. Like I'm missing a lot, but like a lot of these sports that us teenagers are playing and I feel like some adults don't realize how that plays a part. Like, even though like some of us teenagers may look healthy because we've built up so much muscles doesn't mean our bodies are always getting the nutrient, like the nutrients and like all the proteins that it needs. Because I feel like specifically in track sometimes, like we're all very muscular in the legs because we like put in so much time running track. But I know there's a lot of individuals in track who really suffer with eating disorders and I think sometimes they don't even realize that they're suffering with an eating disorder because it's something that teenagers in certain sports have normalized or even sometimes coaches will normalize it especially in wrestling because in wrestling it's become such a normal thing to lose so much weight so fast
1: I also think that hearing from a young person about those pressures and those um the way some adults in their lives are complicit in perpetuating those unhealthy relationships with food uh, is important for people to talk about and to hear because often as adults we don't think we're perpetuating those ideas or that we're embodying them even for ourselves but in in the way your coach talks to you even if they don't explicitly tell you like hey you need to do this the way they frame it, the way they make side comments, the way they let you play or don't let you play, depending on the sport, right, can really drive your motivations around food, weight, ability, muscle, all of those things.
0: You know, while you guys were talking, I I love, have you watched the movie Little Miss Sunshine? It is one of my favorite movies. It's like over the top, hilarious. And problematic in some places. But this little girl wants to become Little Miss Sunshine. And it's like a child beauty pageant, ultimately. And they're like traveling to get her here. And she starts eating ice cream. And the parents are like, oh, Little Miss Sunshine's are like beauty pageant. People don't eat ice cream. And there's like this whole moment of devastation upon her face. And first, I thought, like, to your point, William, like we as parents or adults or whoever can perpetuate these harmful things without even really thinking about it even at such a young age and i mean that's an extreme like little beauty pageant example i think we do that in a lot of like day-to-day things that are not so over the top but i don't know that's just what i was thinking of, of like how we can perpetuate these things at such a young age One of my favorite parts, though, is she like meets a beauty pageant later lady and she's like, oh, I love ice cream. And like the little girl gets the biggest smile on her face. And it's such a good movie. I highly recommend it. And I don't know why that always comes to my mind when we have this conversation, but there is so much we fight against. And I love that that little girl fought against all these negative messages and like did what she loved to do anyways. And I think that was really cool. Sorry, went down a different rabbit hole, but highly recommend the movie. Um and i and i think i brought it up too because we're talking a lot about sport <laughs> but i mean we we do have these little beauty pageants for like girls and like young girls that perpetuate so many harmful things so if you think about magazines and i mean we're surrounded by it we're promoted with this idea that especially women and i'm not just talking about just women but that this is what a woman should be or should look like and we internalize that Anyways, and my my whole point of that is this conversation is important because we don't talk about it enough. And I would like to lead into how problematic it can be. Eating disorders are one of the, high, the second highest mortality or has the second highest mortality rate other than op- opioid addictions. You know, a lot of times we think that people who experience eating disorders are just like going through a phase or whatever, but it's a dangerous thing and it can be a dangerous thing. And there's not a lot of resources out there for a lot of people who experience it.
2: I think what you're saying is great that there's not that many resources and like the ones that are available. It may be harder to like get accessibility to because like of money or like because they don't take certain insurances and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Recovery and like the aspect of getting that professional help, going to Recovery Center is accessible for people of privilege, people who have the money, people who have the insurance. And even then, I think there's only two in Texas. Like there's just not that many places to go or people who specialize in it.
1: Part of that is because people view eating disorders as a personal failure, right? They, they view them as something that isn't medical, isn't mental health related. It's a personal choice that you're making. And it's a personal failure, just like people view homelessness as a personal failure, as opposed to a systemic problem that has led to this particular outcome. And that's part of what prevention is about is like changing people's understanding and mindsets and really shifting our systemic response to things. So that there are more locations, more people that specialize in it, less people that are experiencing it.
2: I think what comes like with trying to get resources is also trying to reach out for help, because I feel like sometimes you can reach out for help. And other people who also maybe not struggling with eating disorder, but struggling with like eating, I think some people may normalize it and be like, well, I also don't eat some days like it's normal when really it's not normal. And it kind of just like. It doesn't validate the people who are struggling trying to reach out for help. And it just ends up hurting everyone.
0: Yeah. And I love that both of y'all brought that up because we do, I mean, as a society, also praise either thinness or muscle building and people who are struggling can be met with harmful comments such as like, oh, why is it a big problem? You look great or something like that. And I know a lot of people that have been met like that because we as a society and as people, it's hard to acknowledge that we've created this society and this culture that is harmful in so many different aspects.
1: I also think it's important to distinguish between someone who has an eating disorder and someone who is food insecure Right. Like those, those are two different issues that we're talking about as well. Um, So I don't want anybody listening to be like, well, I didn't eat because I didn't have food. Like those, those are different issues. Certainly they are related, uh, but they're different. And I just wanted to make sure that we establish that malnutrition and food insecurity are also problematic, but aren't eating disorders as such. So, moving into the relationship between unhealthy and abusive relationships and eating disorders.
2: I think abusers can use eating disorders or hold eating disorders above the victim or survivor's head whenever, I feel like especially whenever they have gone through recovery together or that person has been, like, that person's, like, support system, I think, The abuser can say things such as like, I'm the reason why you recovered or or, I helped you recover and without me, you won't be able to recover or you won't be able to maintain recovery. And I think that's like a big issue, especially whenever that person only has their abuser in their corner and then they really feel like they can't recover without this person or if the abuser like in financial situations, if they were the one who paid for the recovery and then the individual still needs recovery, it's like, how am I supposed to recover if I can't afford it? And this person who's hurting me can only afford it. It's like, and I think that also kind of what causes people to stay in abusive relationships is like, you know, that's another little rabbit hole. But I think like a really big thing, like in recovery is like how important your support system is. And whenever that abusive person is your support system, I think they can really hold that over your head and eat with eating disorders.
0: And if we think about too, how a lot of times in abusive relationships, there is that the abuser can ultimately knock down the self-esteem of their partner and they become reliant on their partner and all these problematic s- cycles that they experience if you have if you're experiencing an eating disorder you might already be experiencing low self-esteem and they can use that against you to make it even lower if that makes sense
1: yeah i think abusers can use Kind of like we, we talked we mentioned it a little bit earlier. They can use manipulative tactics to say like, "Oh, are you really gonna eat that? Are you not uneating?" Like, th- make make comments like that that to maybe an outside observer don't seem abusive, but it's part of a larger patchwork of abusive behaviors that contribute to someone's health and well-being.
2: I think another big thing that goes along with that, like you said, like within those comments, and it's like, whenever you are trying to recover, like if they if they fell in love with you, quote, unquote, fell in love, by the way, like if they fell in love with you for a certain body, and like, everyone obviously knows like the little like, I don't really know what to call it. But like, whenever you're in a happy relationship, like you gain weight, you know, like, as like, people say that, and I think if someone like, if your abuser love you that way, and then like, if you start gaining weight, which is like totally normal, they might say like hurtful comments, like William was saying, like, well, why did you gain that weight? Or like, are you really going to eat that? Like you don't need that extra fat or something, you know, I feel like that's like a really big thing also. And it's just like feeding into that eating
1: disorder. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that even when, if someone breaks up with you because of your weight or because of the way you look um, or because of what you don't look like those effects of that relationship those unhealthy and abusive effects are prolonged it's not just now that that relationship is over it's over right they settle into your self-esteem they settle into your worldview and your view of yourself and so I agree
0: I also think to like even talking about misconceptions of eating disorders, we often think that it is like a physical thing. There's also a mental aspect as well. And people who experience an eating disorder can at times put themselves down a lot, going back to that low self-esteem that can kick in. And and I think it almost can make some people accustomed to some behaviors or it almost makes it seem like, like the abuse is not that bad is what I'm getting at. Because people who experience eating disorders can perpetuate those same statements themselves.
1: It's like self-deprecating statements. So so when they talk down to themselves, when someone else talks down to you, it doesn't, it kind of blurs it out a little bit. Yeah, I think also often a result of eating disorders it are some health consequences, whether it's like brittle bones or you bruise more easily. And so it's easier for an abuser who who is perpetuating physical abuse to blend in those assaults with the eating disorder and say oh because they they don't eat enough so like they, they don't have right like the bone density like all of those things it's easier for an abuser to to use the eating disorder to mask the abuse so while abusers can leverage the eating disorder to mask the abuse what are y'all's thoughts on the survivor's perception of their abuser? Um, what I'm trying to ask is would it be possible for someone in an abusive relationship, someone who has an eating disorder in an abusive relationship, to see their abuser in a positive light um, and kind of put the negativity on the eating disorder?
2: I'm not sure if I'm answering your question in the right way, but this is like what I thought of whenever you said that. I feel like in a way, if the survivor or victim is like going through that eating disorder in this relationship, I feel like they could possibly feel like, well, this is the only person that's like being honest with me and like validate their own feelings and validate that person like that their abuser isn't a bad person because they're like the only person that's being honest
0: with them. And like, to be clear, quote unquote, honest.
2: <laughs> yes, quote well, unquote.
0: I hadn't thought about it that way. I think that is an interesting perspective on it. And I also think that even if the abuser or the partner, I'm going to say the partner, is not feeding into that and not... "Quote unquote," telling you the truth, and they are telling you the opposite of and things you want to hear. Like you are beautiful. You don't need to do this at first in the first part of the relationship. They can almost seem like the savior a little bit, and they can be someone who you feel comfortable with and you feel worthy with, and you feel like you don't almost to like mask those terrible things you can tell yourself (laughs) with an eating disorder. Because with those types of relationships, there often is that that highlight or that nice moment with the partner. It's not always terrible. It's not always awful. And so that can also be a part of that building of the relationship as they feel like you feel safe with that person at first.
1: I think that goes with what a lot of us understand to be the cycle of abuse, right? They build you up and then there's a, a conflict and then they tear you down and it's the abusive behavior. And then it goes back into the honeymoon phase. And so they make you feel great about yourself and then they tear you down. But then they're the one that makes you feel great about yourself again, um, and so it kind of just again perpetuates this cycle of behaviors from an abuser or a perpetrator. It's easy for a survivor to focus on those those positive things because they those honeymoon phases feel good. Those are where the good memories are, and so, and I would imagine that is is a, a cycle that's present when a perpetrator is using eating disorders as a as a tactic as well. Sarah, earlier you mentioned uh, a statistic about sexual assault survivors and eating disorders. Could you give us that statistic again?
0: Women who experienced sexual assault were two times more likely to develop bulimia than women who had not experienced sexual assault.
1: So bulimia specifically is about this, yes. is the stat. Yeah, so... Vivian, do you have any thoughts about why an assault survivor might develop bulimia after their assault?
2: Yeah, William, I think that's like a really good, for one statistic, and I think it's really interesting. I personally think that a big factor that plays into developing to developing bulimia after an assault is that you can control what comes in and out of your body, meaning you can choose whenever you eat. And that's also the really big control factor I was talking about before is that, After you've been assaulted, you may feel like you've lost your control because obviously what happened to you was not in your control. And now you're trying to look for ways that you can find control. And I feel like with bulimia, you can choose whenever you eat, but then also you can choose to throw that up if you want. And also I was having a conversation with someone the other day and we were talking about bulimia with sexual assault. And this person mentioned that Most of the time or not most of the time, but sometimes with sexual assault survivors, if they were full during the time, then they may not want to relive those feelings of feeling full. So then they'll throw up to feel that emptiness because oftentimes being full and during the assault can just be a big trigger to the survivor. And I also think with other eating disorders that after being assaulted or after going through a sexual assault with other eating disorders that you may blame the way that your body looked for the assault. You may think, well, for some people, it may be if I wasn't so skinny and then they want to just gain weight. So then they don't look, they don't have a quote-unquote pretty appearance therefore people won't want them and then they think they'll think like that they can prevent another assault or for other people it's like it like if they have those thoughts of like well maybe if I wasn't so fat then this wouldn't have happened to me and then they may want to lose weight because of that.
0: I think that's a really good point in that like it can cause a really difficult relationship with your body for a lot of different reasons and People react differently to it. But to your point, like wanting to cover it up, wanting to get something out, it can be a really consuming feeling.
1: Yeah, I think when we do basic education about assault, whether it's sexual assault, whether it's dating violence, we really try to to drive home the fact that it's not about anger. It's not about opportunity. It's about power and control. And that's what an assailant, an offender, a perpetrator, whatever you want to call them, has exerted over their victim. They've they've taken that power and that control away from them. And so a lot of people can use or turn to or develop an eating disorder to try to have that semblance of control. It's their coping mechanism for dealing with the trauma from their assault.
0: There have apparently been studies researching bulimia in that it causes similar things in your brain, like drug addiction. And so it can become addictive. And I think that that shows a lot because even if it's not like necessarily an eating disorder, some sexual assault survivors can lean on alcohol or drugs to numb that pain and numb that feeling. And if bulimia is related to feeling that same similarity, like a drug addiction, it would make sense that they're more likely to develop that eating disorder specifically.
1: Yeah, and I think that actually... Leads us really well into a conversation about recovery. If an eating disorder, in this in this particular case, you were talking about bulimia mimicking drug addiction, right? Yeah, yeah. So it only stands to reason that recovery would look similar similar to drug treatment. Addiction recovery is not a quick and easy thing. It it takes a lot of effort, um, and of course, it's it varies depending on like. The type of addiction you've got, the type of drug, like, right. But that I imagine stands for eating disorders, the type of eating disorder, how long you've had it, what the motivations for it were but it's, it's a, a treatment process. It's not just a singular point in time. Um, and for some people, maybe it is, maybe this one thing happens. Um, they, they end up in the hospital and just like someone who's been smoking for however long, some people can stop cold Turkey. And, and maybe that is the same for eating disorders in that they are, there's this turning point that they can stop instantly. But uh, I would imagine that it mirrors other recovery and treatment programs where it's a whole process.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. It is an extensive process and, you know, there's different levels to it. So you have like the inpatient, you have hospitalization, you have outpatient, you have intensive patient, like there's so many different levels to recovery, kind of going back to what we were saying earlier that not everyone has access to, but I, there's also that st- stigma too, right? Like there's A lot of people who don't necessarily want to talk about it. And I think that's the same with addiction. And we we do think that you should just go to AA and be fine. Right. And it's just it's not like that with either eating disorders, recovery from an assault or recovering from an addiction. It is a long, hard process
2: I definitely agree that it's a long process. And I don't think people realize that recovery isn't just this thing, and then it's going to be done recovery, I, I think, and I think y'all can agree with me is like a lifelong thing that you'll always like go through. And even if it's just like the tiniest bit, like you have relapses and stuff, which is like completely normal, which I think some people expect people with eating disorders, like after they get out of recovery to just boom, be fine. When really it's like, it's not like that, you know, depending on what recovery you choose and what you need for that moment, like if it's like inpatient residential or anything like that, like even after that, you may need to continue therapy, which is like completely normal. And I think that's just like another kind of myth that goes along with eating disorders. It's like once you've recovered that you're
0: just completely done, which is not true. And I do like that you said like it is going to be or could be throughout your life. And there's no shame in reaching out for help 10 years later. You know, and I think there is that that pressure to be okay and to have it under control or not to need more resources. But sometimes you just do.
1: And and it does sound a lot like other types of addiction where there are triggers that happen through that can happen throughout your life that are that learning those are part of your recovery and learning to use healthy coping mechanisms when you encounter those triggers so that you don't relapse.
0: And I think like even now taking a moment to just even talk about the pandemic too and how that is, it's, I mean, it's causing people to relapse uh, ultimately or people develop more eating disorders. And according to NPR, the calls to the national eating disorder hotline have gone up 70 to 80% in the pandemic, which is an insane number. Like, that's huge. And we see that, too, with the DV situations, that that number is going up with the pandemic. People are stressed out. People are having a hard time. And in these times or these situations, it is important for people to, like, know that there is no shame for reaching out to help. And as high as that number is, I also think it's really hopeful in that people are calling and people are asking for resources and people are talking about it. A long time ago, that wasn't a thing we could do.
2: Speaking of this pandemic, a lot of things have changed and we've had to go virtually like this Zoom call that we're having. So if you hear my cat in the background, sorry, but I definitely agree with Sarah. Like with this pandemic, many things have changed. And I think that has to do a lot with the control factor in eating disorders and that also a lot of people's resources and help got switched. I know for therapy, a lot of people had to switch to telehealth, which was very, very hard, I believe, on some people.
0: Yeah. And I mean, even just like the lack of structure or lack of support that we are experiencing with being in our own homes by ourselves or with like our family all the time or whatever. There's a lot of different things going on in life right now. And so it it can be hard. And, you know, I don't know, like off the top of my head, if addiction has gone up as well, but I can assume if everything else is going up, that those numbers are rising as well. But back to like what I said earlier about there being hope, I would like to move into hope for recovery. Vivian, I'm curious on your thoughts about, because I know recovery for any kind of addiction or struggle can be hard, especially during this time. And so I'm curious on your thoughts about hopeful recovery.
2: I think recovery is a really long journey. And I think I can say from personal experience that it is really worth it. Just being able to eat whatever you want and hang out with friends and not just consuming your whole life and consuming sitting there trying to count the calories and trying to think how you're going to work out later in the day to make up for it. I think recovery is the best decision anyone can make for yourself. And I think although it may be long and really hard to find the resources and the people. And even just as a teenager, finding someone you can talk to and trust to open up about this is a really hard thing. But I think identifying that trusting person in your life is like the first step to being able to talk about it and ask for help in your resources. And I think the way I've kind of put people in categories of like the people I trust are like how people respect my boundaries personally, because I feel like boundaries are a really big thing. And I feel like if someone can respect my boundaries and they're pretty trusting and then also just their place in my life, I've been very thankful to have amazing advocates and my mom and just everyone, like even on this board of people that I can really trust. And I think having those people in your support system and in your corner rooting for you is a really big, important thing in recovery. And if you're out there currently in recovery, I've been leaving you and you can do this and you are so worthy of recovering.
1: That's beautiful. Vivian, what advice would you give to adults um, in being in trying to be that trusted, supportive person? How, how can we as adults position ourselves to be a good resource for anybody struggling um, with anything, but maybe specifically with an eating disorder?
2: Yeah, I love that question, William. Thank you. I think the way adults can really help in these situations is whenever a young person comes to you with the situation, saying that they're struggling with eating or however they put it, I think it's really important just to, just to be there and listen to them and not overreact or not shame them for what they're doing. Just really just be there and be that help. And you know, if you're like the person in their life that is able to get them resources. And if you're not that person, if you're a teacher or a counselor, then talk to the person's parents or caregivers that are able to do that to give those resources.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. And I, I think it is so important to become educated on eating disorders themselves and what you can do as a support person. Again, referring back to Anita's website, which will be linked so they have parent toolkits that you can go to to learn more about how to be supports and things that we can say every day that might be a little more harmful. So I think really diving in and learning what you can. There's a lot more information now than there was 10 years ago. And really utilizing that information as you provide support for anyone in your life will be helpful.
1: Vivian just shared with us her thoughts on hopeful recovery, which makes me wonder more broadly, what are your hopes and dreams for... This conversation in the future for people struggling with eating disorders, for survivors who might be in recovery, what are your hopes and dreams? Sarah, you first.
0: I have a lot of hopes and dreams. and Share like, them all. <laughs> share them all. I think for those who are struggling with a difficult relationship with food and or themselves, I hope that they know kind of to what Vivian was saying, that they are worthy of that recovery and worthy of a safe and healthy life with safe and healthy relationships and they can learn to heal and grow and find that self-love that we all search for. I also hope that people around those who struggle will become aware of that struggle and be a support and a safe place for them to go to and to talk to and and to find that healing and that recovery with and that we'll become more educated on eating disorders and the recovery themselves. Uh, and then systemically and culturally, I hope that we can change a lot of these harmful messages that we send young people and people in general. You know, there's been more awareness on eating disorders and more information on on them. I'm not going to say we know why they where they stem from or anything, but we have a lot more information and I don't see that our culture has changed that much. And so I hope we can really take that and grow and become a healthier culture that supports people in general. I also hope that there's more resources and more recovery places. I'm glad there's one that I know of in Texas because that was not true 15, 10 years ago. So it's an improvement, but we definitely have a long way to go in helping people recover.
2: Oh, I love that so much, Sarah. And I definitely agree. I really hope that whoever's listening to this, if you're struggling, that you go and you get help or you at least talk to someone. Because even that, just like that little conversation, I don't think you'll like realize right now how much that can help and change your life. And I hope that anyone who is struggling, like Sarah said, gets the resources. And I hope one day with future generations that us, that my generation right now, that we're being more, I feel like we're more educational about it. And I hope that our young voices help bring change for the future generations and i hope that hopefully one day the statistics of eating disorders and teen dating violence and sexual assault and domestic violence and all these things go down because i really feel like our generation is the change
1: yeah i definitely agree with you i think we've seen so much activism out of your generation already and i think that's Crazy, impressive, and I hope that that energy continues into y'all's adulthood. I hope that we really start to approach the issue of eating disorders and the issue of violence and that intersection of those two things with an equity lens. There is, there's no typical person you know it it can happen to anyone at any age of of any race of any socioeconomic status of any gender of any sexuality and it's it's really important for us to to recognize that and to acknowledge that folks dealing with eating disorders don't fit into this box that we have a cultural narrative around And to to Sarah's point about treatment options, sometimes those folks need particular intersectional treatment options that can really address them as an individual and their lived experience. So I hope that we can start to see more of those as options for treatment and recovery.
0: If you, the listeners, are experiencing an eating disorder and want to reach out for help or you know someone who is, there is the national hotline that you can call. We will put the number in the episode description. Um, They also have chat options, texting options, and translation available. I also really recommend... Again, both personally and professionally, I've read this book and it was given to me by a student I worked with and I really appreciated it. It's a book by Jenny Schaefer. She's written a, written a couple of the books about life without an eating disorder and what it looks like. And it's just got a lot of really great information of what struggling with an eating disorder can look like and how you can find hope in there. And so I definitely recommend her books as well.
1: And before we go, Vivian is a big believer in positive mantras and so she is going to lead you the listener through a positive mantra so she is going to speak a statement give you some space to repeat that statement after her and she's going to continue through a whole series of these to really bring some positivity into your day bring some self-esteem some self-efficacy to you that you can Believe in yourself and accomplish anything.
2: Yay! It is mantra time, y'all. You know, got to end on a positive note. Okay. So, like William said, I am going to say a mantra and I'm going to give you a little bit of time to repeat after me, whether that's out loud or in your head. Let's get to it, y'all. First one I am enough. I am stronger than I know. The number on the scale does not define me. I am worthy of all the happiness and love I can take on any day. I got this. Others do not define my worth. Only I do. And with that being said, I want all of you to know you are worthy of
0: everything. We all are. Thanks for having me guys. Remember to take care of yourself. Thank you, Vivian. I Love that. I was typing it down as you were saying it. So it'll be on my computer ready for me. I appreciate you having this open and honest conversation with us and providing that support and that hope for people everywhere. Thank you for being on our leadership board and being such a great example to those around you.
1: Thanks, Vivian. It's always a pleasure to have you around. You bring such positive energy with you everywhere you go. And we hope that you have been able to spread some of that positive energy with that positive mantra list to our listeners and so normally this would be our last episode of the month closing out teen dating violence awareness month however here in texas this is legislative season so later this week we will have a bonus special episode with a couple members of our policy team to talk about tcfe's legislative agenda so be sure to watch out for that There's still time as of right now, as of when this episode is released, for you to fill out your purple postcard. So go do that for our policy team so that we can tell our legislature here in Texas that it is important to fully fund domestic and sexual violence programs to help serve survivors and their families. And with that, we'll see y'all on the bonus episode here in a few days. Bye. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye.